Well, good evening, folks. Welcome back to Teachers in the Wild podcast. This is Fry, your illustrious host. And I, I guess my other half of the host is uh, the intrepid Donovan. Konnichiwa. Um, thank you, uh, Donovan son. Um, <laughs> that's probably not good. But anyway, uh, tonight is a great opportunity to continue our discussion about mushrooms, foraging, and how to sustain yourself um, with knowing where your food comes from. Tonight, we have Laura Stewart from Haw River Mushrooms out in Sex Hop. Saxophone, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm gonna let her say that correctly because I just butchered it, and I'm sure there are I don't know what the saxophone nights people. Oh, like. you just nailed it! Yes, huh? <laughs> that that was it. That saxophone. Yes, they're they're gonna be upset with me. So, Laura, tell us about yourself. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's been a pleasure to get to know uh, you guys a little bit and hear more about your podcast. Um, I have uh, my husband and I own a mushroom farm in Saxapaha called Haw River Mushrooms. So we have been uh, cultivating mushrooms since 2012. We started out as a diversified produce farm. Um, and we actually got to lease land at uh, Ayrshire Farm in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, which uh, was the first certified organic farm in the state. And it was owned by the legendary Bill Dow, um, who uh, his memoirs have been published called uh, What I Stand On. And I highly recommend the book. So a lot of background to say uh, our introduction to farming uh, was right on land that for 30 years had been farmed organically and with people really thinking about the soil. Um, and it kind of laid a nice basis for our approach to farming. Um, However, we didn't stay with diversified produce all that long. While we were uh, selling and, and growing, my husband Chester took a class in South Carolina at Mushroom Mountain with Trad Cotter, uh, who's a great Southeastern mycologist. And um, we started, uh, he learned about growing oyster mushrooms on straw. And so we were playing around with that a little bit. And that fall, we inoculated 250 um, shiitake logs. Wow. Um, and, and the following spring started to get a nice little shiitake harvest. Um, and so it didn't take long. Within a year, we were uh, we were still part-time farmers. We both had full-time off-farm jobs, uh, both as the diversified produce, and we were selling everything at a Saturday market. So <laughs> we, would, we would go to work and then have a change of clothes and then farm until the sun set. And then have a change of clothes for our ride home because we'd be so sweaty. Um, so uh, we uh, started uh, doing more straw farming and growing oyster mushrooms. And as that sort of started to take off, we realized that there's a possibility for us to get to farm full time. Um, but to make that transition, we really need to, you know, change our substrate and uh, start growing on sawdust uh, and expand sort of to some different mediums um, so we made that change and we did that for another two and a half years of sort of working the day job and coming home and working on the farm and in uh, let's see it was May of this year my husband was able to leave his last part-time off-farm job uh, so we're now full-time 
farmers. Awesome. <laughs> it's been a long journey to get here. You know, we really came to mushrooms through cultivation, and then that has spiraled into our interest in mushroom foraging. There's a lot of mushrooms that you can't grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, you spend enough time thinking about cooking with, talking about mushrooms, and you, you want to taste them all. Uh, so, you know, that sort of led us to start learning about foraging and wild mushrooms and other things that mushrooms can do, like mycoremediation and how they're being researched to possibly save the bees uh, and to create uh, medicines for people. Um, so it's kind of spiraled from there that now we now we think everything comes back to mushrooms. <laughs> so essentially we are mushrooms. Yes, that's that's all there is. <laughs> I, I love that idea. We are fungi. <laughs> So that that's all wonderful, and I, I'm really impressed by all of that. Um, with your, your farm itself, um, how many varieties of mushrooms do you grow? Um, or if there's, like, different seasons for different mushrooms? So we grow indoors uh, in a modified – we started out in a shipping container – um, and then we added a second unit, which is a, a refrigerator trailer. Um, so because of that, and then we control uh, for light, temperature, oxygen, and humidity. Uh, so we are four season growers. Uh, we're able to mushrooms are pretty are pretty specific about their environment. Um, we keep the humidity above 90 percent at all time we keep the temperature between 65 and 75 degrees Uh, we have a mini split uh, that's kind of in the entry area so we're bringing in fresh air and we heat it or cool it as needed to that temp that 10 degree temperature range and then uh, we funnel that heated or cooled air into our humidified growing chamber and uh, mushrooms also they create a byproduct of carbon dioxide uh, and those CO2 levels can rise really high if you're not doing a constant fresh air exchange. Uh, so we have exhaust, we have, that's why we're bringing in the fresh air from outside, and then we have an exhaust fan sending it out. So we're actually exchanging the air, I think about every 90 seconds, we're getting a pretty full air exchange. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Those CO2 levels will rise really fast on you if you're not paying attention. So we had uh, the power was knocked out um, before we had our generator um, this uh, spring, and it was an 80 degree day. Uh, and so I kind of did. I called it the local, the nosy yokel strut. <laughs> I walked out to meet the Duke Energy truck, and I was like, "I've got this farm," and I was talking about CO two, and uh, you know, like, when is the power going to be back on? And you know, so he was saying just in a few hours. And he was right. He got it. He got it back on in three hours. But in that time, our CO2 levels, normal air is a carbon dioxide level of about zero to 300 parts per million. Mm -hmm. And we try to keep our uh, grow area uh, at 700 parts per million or below. And around 900 parts per million, mushrooms will start to be affected. They'll start to abort their pins, which are kind of the baby mushrooms coming in. Um, A lot of bad things can start to happen. 
So I took that uh, CO2 reading once the power came back on, and we were at like 3,000 parts per million. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's enough to make you dizzy. Wow. that I just learned two really cool facts there. Um, I did not know that mushrooms produce CO2. Like, I, I learned in biology class, all plants take in CO2 and produce oxygen. And that's how the world works. And no one really told us that mushrooms, actually, no one told us that mushrooms produce CO2. Like, that's a really cool uh, fact. But then 90% humidity, how do you go in there? and not die of <laughs> just like oh it's lovely actually we have all these little uh humidifier fans and so i mean it's been so humid outside that yeah in some ways you can see you don't feel much difference but on a really dry day mm -hmm. or like in winter when the air is so dry you go in there and the air is warmer and then the humidifiers are kind of going putting this little mist into the air oh, lovely. it's like a rainforest <laughs> For, for our listeners who don't live in North Carolina um, or in the southeastern part of the United States, it is incredibly humid during the summer, and it's almost just dilapidating. Like, it's like walking through soup. Debilitating. Yeah. I've heard uh, I've heard people say the, the phrase, uh, it's weather you can wear. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful phrase. Yeah. Uh, I walked outside today, and it was gross. Yeah, it's, it was <laughs> yep. pretty gnarly out. So I'm kind of like thrown for a loop by all the science involved in mushrooms because i thought you know mushrooms were kind of like teachers and the person in charge just keeps them in the dark and feeds them crap and it's really kind of not like that yeah <laughs> so you thought you thought mushrooms were like you donovan no 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 i mean it's like i'm sure you have many fungal properties i probably <laughs> I, I probably like staying do. in the dark yes but no i mean like you know <laughs> You know, um, school board keeps teachers in the dark and feeds them BS all the time. I figured it was mushrooms <laughs> oh, for the same way. Sorry, it's an old saying that is really corny. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm the corny one, and I didn't even laugh at that. Well, that's because you don't have taste. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Yeah, as a mushroom farmer, we hear that all the time. People will be like, oh, so do you just grow in a cave? Or, um, And, you know, you probably heard me mention in that list of things that they need, it included light. Um, we have full-spectrum lights in our mushroom grow room. So most mushrooms do need some light, which makes sense when you think about where you see mushrooms out in nature. You know, mm -hmm. like when you go foraging, you don't hear about people saying like, yeah, I went deep into the caves to find my chicken of the woods. Well, it, it's it's kind of like mind blowing, though, that, I mean, you have such a controlled environment to grow, you know, mushrooms in, and then you go outside and you just see them everywhere. It's kind of like there there has to be that perfect set of circumstances in nature and it's but it comes so easy. And here we are trying to replicate it. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So, and you know, I'd mentioned that there are certain mushrooms that you just have to go forage because you really can't cultivate them or at least not on a, on a scale that would make any kind of financial sense, you know, other than just as a, a fun science experiment. Um, and, and they don't even completely know exactly why that is that some mushrooms are so resistant to cultivation, but we have a pretty good sense that it has to do with some of the symbiotic relationships they have between a complex set of uh, yeast and bacteria that they're going to find in the soil. So it's not, it's not enough. Like with our oyster mushrooms, we, we put that spawn into a sterile substrate 
and then it can kind of run dominantly and go. But if I was going to try to grow morels, that would be a really sweet deal for me. They sell for about $60 a pound. So if I could cultivate them, you know, I could take that trip to Tahiti (laughs) if I didn't eat them all. Uh, but they but they're really resistant to it and it's because you can't just stick them in a sterile substrate that mushrooms generally like they're actually looking for other organisms that they have a symbiotic relationship with that help trigger them to grow like if we're comparing wild mushrooms and for lack of a better term I don't know how to phrase it domestic is there a different a difference in how they grow like if i was going to grow like i don't know like a portobello mushroom versus like a chicken of the woods is that like a a completely different animal it is yeah you know uh obviously a different genus uh and species just you know on a scientific level and then if you're thinking about different varieties of mushrooms a, a big distinction right off the bat would be mushrooms that grow on wood versus mushrooms that grow in soil mm-hmm. You know, so the button mushrooms that you commonly put in salad and portobello mushrooms, those are all soil mm-hmm. mushrooms, you know, so they're more. We also, one of the products of our farm is mushroom compost. And so people will be like, oh, yeah, you know, made originally from manure, right? It probably It's probably stinky. It's like, well, no, because we specialize in hardwood mushrooms that we're growing on sawdust. So, but at no point do we use, you know, manure compost or anything like that because we're we're doing a wood mushroom and to get it to grow faster and more predictably it's like we've pre-chewed its food for it so we're growing it on sawdust huh. interesting wow pre-chewed food it's like a bird <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm. <laughs> and uh yeah yeah when you said manure mushrooms all, all i could think of was man you would have like such a strong following of college kids why is that no, for no, the morel mushrooms because you know the sisilabin mushrooms grow on cow manure or that's the what people say oh manure oh i see what Man, you're my saying. jokes are just falling all over the place today i'm just gonna give it up what are you yeah nobody understands I what i i maybe it's because i'm a millennial and i ruin things but yeah no those, those those didn't land at you all you guys killed music killed everything <laughs> Like I'm on the landing strip and I'm waving my uh my lights at you and you're just flying all over the place and so shush and go listen to dashboard <laughs> But um to to divert this digression, um so for me as well, I was a I'm gonna say this with air quotes, but you can't see that, uh, a vegetarian for <laughs> ten years from the time I was like eleven to twenty one. Don't ask. <laughs> it's a weird time in my life. As uh, opposed to now. <laughs> yeah. It was weirder. Um, growing pains. <laughs> but like the the scope of mushrooms that we have in the United States seems like I, I've been busting at the seams with like different ones that are coming up that I don't see here in the United States in our grocery stores. Um why is the culture around mushrooms so taboo here in the United States? Or Yeah, I mean, I hear different theories. It's, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. We, our culture on mushrooms is distinctly different um, from, you know, like 
a lot of other areas, especially kind of in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, when I'm out, we work several different farmers markets and I'll have people, you know, see something and be like, Oh, my, you know, grandmother used to forage mushrooms or used to, you know, especially when I have the chanterelles, mm-hmm. they'll say, Oh, you know, my grandmother used to point these out. But then for some reason, that generation, the next generation, that tradition died. I think some of it is, is probably immigrants coming to the United States, uh, and maybe some pressure around us. I'm getting, I'm getting a little out of outside my <laughs> milieu here with theorizing, but, but things people have talked about, like, why is it so distinctly different? Uh, like in Finland, I heard a statistic and I should point out that 87% of statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> but I heard great. up a, I heard a statistic that, uh, said that something like, uh, 85% of people had been, foraging in the last year in finland you know in finland whereas like in the u.s 15 percent of the population you wouldn't get 15 percent that had foraged ever you know (laughs) um so i don't know i mean uh and and i will say i think it's sort of changing uh, I, I think we're starting to see more people kind of interested in, uh, and learning more about the wilderness and, uh, about the abundance, the massive abundance of food that you can find there. Um, and I didn't forage my first mushroom until I was in my thirties. So <laughs> it's never too late. I wonder if the taboo around mushrooms, um, kind of comes from, I, I know, well, two things. One, I, I joined um, like a Facebook mm-hmm. mushroom identification group just so I could try to get at least some idea. And you you post a picture of the mushroom and you get back like scientific names. And scientific names are intimidating yeah. as all hell. I mean, you know what I mean? If somebody says, hey, that's a chicken of the woods, I mean, then I'll know to eat that because I've seen that, you know, those are edible. I haven't seen that Latin name number one and Latin name number two are edible. Yeah. yeah it takes it takes a while um to and i understand why you know if somebody's doing a an online id you know the reason we have the latin names that which is the genus and species is uh so that because a lot of times those common names actually you know overlap or people don't we're not talking about the same thing but when you use genus and species there's no mistaking that, okay, we are talking about, uh, you know, this specific mushroom. So I, I get why people do that even just as sort of a, you know, protect yourself if you're going to be IDing <laughs> mushrooms online, which is probably, oh, yeah. probably yeah. a dubious hobby. Again, going back to the idea of it's on the internet, so it must be true, right? Yeah. Oh, and I'll tell you one thing. Do not ever, ever, if you've picked a mushroom and then you Google chicken of the woods. And so Google images, you know, within the first 10 images shows you a picture of the mushroom you just picked. Mm -hmm. That is not a scientific ID. (laughs) Because remember, Google's just trying to sort of figure out like, okay, someone who posted this picture on whatever blog at some point said the words chicken of the woods, or, you know, maybe it was an essay about how this is not chicken of the woods. Um, but that, 
that makes me nervous sometimes when I'm just Googling stuff and I see the results, you know, Google chanterelles and you'll see a bunch of jack-o'-lanterns, which are sort of the chanterelle lookalike that will make you really sick. So in situations like that, if you use Google to ID it, you should probably get your friend to eat it first. (laughs) That that was what I was leading to. Thank you for spelling that out for me. I am. I'm so glad that children don't listen to this podcast because that podcast <laughs> runs rampant among us, us intellectual yeah. types. Let, let me say clearly that, you know, the first time that you're going to eat a mushroom, you know, like when you eat a banana, you're not like, hmm, what's the genus and species? What's You just, you know it. Mm-hmm. You know it, you know, you know how the peel looks, you know the texture you're expecting, you know what you expect it to smell like. So spend some time with some expert ID folks, you you know, go to some forays and uh, when I think where people kind of get themselves into trouble is when they're trying to make a mushroom be what they wish it was. So when you when you look at those photos of looks lookalikes, like there's the morel and then there's a false morel. The false morel doesn't look that much like a morel, and it's not hollow in the middle. There's just there's a lot of things that probably should have told those people that it's not a morel, and I feel like a big part of what got them in trouble is they wanted it to be something else. Um, so that said, I think when you're first getting started foraging, you really you really got to get an in-person ID, um, and then it won't take that long before you just know you know, with complete confidence, what a morel is or a chanterelle or a chicken of the woods, my talkie, you know, some of the ones that grow around here, well, we you'll just, just know from you. I mean, that works too, right? Mm-hmm. That <laughs> really works for me a lot. Um, I really, really you know, like the, the that. The other thing with mushrooms, and I think this is what kind of <laughs> probably, especially in America has helped steer people away from them is whoever gave mushrooms uh-huh. common names, did them no favors. I mean, like you have mushrooms that have, <laughs> oh, they God. have death in the name, and you know, I mean, they're they're not deadly. And then you have ones that are nice sounding, and they are. Or, or you have one, you have like I know there's two different mushrooms. One of them has death in the name and will kill you. The other one has death in the name and is perfectly edible. What's the one with death in the name that you eat? I think are you like think, is it the black? Yeah, the trumpet of death or something like trumpet? that. And then you have like the death yeah. cat mushroom that will kill you. <laughs> Right. So usually I do not refer to my black trumpets as trumpet of death, but I I think just because it's got that dark color. Yeah, it is like there are some people that are just like, I'm going to protect my foraging spots. It just sounds like a a really cool metal band name, trumpet of death. Or really bad ska band. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the... You know, the most common uh, deadly mushroom in North Carolina is called the Destroying I, Angel. I rest my kids. Which is, it's got a nice sort of poeticness to it. And a single cap could, can kill an wow. adult. Um, that. So those are, the ones you don't, those are the ones you don't give to friends. Those are the ones you give to exes. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Oh. Some of us don't hate our exes. <laughs> So uh, we're going to, we do not encourage um, premeditated murder um, or any of any kind. Um, I thought I didn't have to say these kinds of things, Donovan. Come on now. Nobody's going to trust you with their kids now. Yeah, well, worst things have happened. Um, so when it comes to foraging, um, it has 
it's something I'd like to learn, but where we are, um, which is, you know, mm-hmm. down around Greensboro, High Point, that neck of the woods, central North Carolina, um, it is really hard to find somebody that's knowledgeable. At least it has been for me. But then comes the question of if I find somebody and they claim to be knowledgeable, how do I know they're knowledgeable and they're not, you know, some jerk like me who's going to give somebody something that's like, here, this is going to make you sick for a day and I'm going to laugh. <laughs> well, um, there's a, a fairly new certification program for um, it's a you can you can do the the certification covers North Carolina, South Carolina and Georgia. So if I was going to pay somebody to uh, to take me out and teach me foraging, I think I might be pretty close to the point of of expecting them to have that certification. Now, uh, a little background on it's the certification is so that a forager can sell to a restaurant. And so it's uh, administered by the health departments. Um, So it's not like you have to be certified to forage and, you know, sell to your friend. It's, it's for people that are selling to uh, basically restaurants, people that would be under the supervision of the health department. But that's one thing. If they had that certification, then it means they took at least a two-day course and they passed a pretty rigorous mm-hmm. test. Um, but then you also will – I would trust people that are just like, you know, they've been foraging for years and they've been cooking and eating and they can probably list you three dozen different recipes uh, that they use for different wild forage mushrooms, and they have a lot of spots that they absolutely <laughs> will not take you to <laughs> or tell you where they are. Um, you know, the, if you can kind of do some of your own due diligence, I, I can think of folks that I know that I would trust that don't have that certification. But the certification is sort of a – that's a nice way to just know, like, oh, this is something that was actually – has actually been tested uh, you had to pass a test or you would not have that certificate. And the state has basically said, you seem to be demonstrating knowledge that makes us trust you to sell to restaurants. I I'm, I like the going and seeing someone who's experienced. I'm about passing down those traditions because like you said earlier, like that tradition of foraging had been lost for a generation. And uh, it, it's interesting how things come back in style that sounds really cliche but um we're going back through this um, resurgency of going outside and being aware of what's around us how do we cultivate it how do we process it how does it affect the environment um so i think um seeing those people in your community is really important and What's great about this for us, Donovan, well, I know you're a little bit farther than I am. Um, you're relatively close to us. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yes, I'm not going to try to say that again. Say what, say what again? <laughs> Saxapa. Right here in Saxapa. I want to add an extra syllable. Man. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should add one caveat mm. because I see, I see this come up sometimes. Like, I think... Uh, we are actually on the same Facebook uh, foraging group that you mentioned earlier. You know, somebody will go on and say, hey, well, uh, like a experienced forager go foraging with me. Yeah. And they always get crickets. <laughs> you know, and it's uh, foragers have their spots. And so 
everybody's time limited. Uh, so it, it, but first of all, you know, you can only spend so much time out in the woods. And so that limited amount of time, you're probably going to want to go to spots that you've either been, you know, I've got certain ones that I, I know I found certain mushrooms in those locations, or I've been kind of casing the joint and I notice like, oh, there are a lot of old oak trees here. I'm going to come back during such and such a season and check it out. And so I'm not, I'm not going to share that spot with someone, even if I would like to get to know them better. Uh, and it's, I just always sort of feel, <laughs> feel bad. Cause it's not, you know, I'm not the only one, you know, that's nobody, nobody's going to do that. So if, if you are looking for an expert, you know, either see if you've had a really close friend and I'll tell you the, the friend, the people that I have taken foraging are my immediate family. Um, uh, the woman, uh, my doula, <laughs> when my twins were born, <laughs> uh, and the woman who first cared for my twins when I went back to work. So it's sort of like, gosh, if you didn't like, if you weren't one of the first five people to hold my babies <laughs> or I'm married to you, it just seems to, you know, to work out that way. Uh, so beyond that, if you're kind of looking to, to gain that, to, some time with that experienced forager, I, I would say sign up for a foray, um, which is sort of when different experts come together and, and they'll look for different mushrooms. And usually they're kind of associated with a university or some sort of research where they're wanting to know different species, not just edible, uh, that are in the area. My experience with forays though, is that they're not always, they're kind of, they're not about you <laughs> as the participant. They're a lot of times they're really just trying to identify the mushrooms and they'll do their best to kind of educate you or give you mushroom hunting tips, uh, while you're there, but it, it's not a class for you, but it's also free. Uh, and the people that come tend to be really cool, um, or sign up for a class where, you know, it's about you and helping you gain those skills and gain that confidence, um, and, uh, and pay somebody to go, to go out foraging and, uh, whatever part of the country you're in, I, I, I keep seeing more and more of those classes sort of crop up. Um, I know this is, the podcast is national, so hopefully it doesn't sound too self-serving that our farm does offer those classes periodically. Um, hopefully there's, there's one in, see, in your region as well. I'm end up having to pay somebody cause I don't really have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have yes. friends though. No, no. Just accept it. Um, I had to learn that in college. I have noticed something talking to uh, <laughs> to you and other folks that kind of have forging, and it's it's kind of an interesting parallel. That you know, in a lot of ways, it, it's very similar to like hunting or fishing. The way that it's approached. I mean, you were talking about like casing out oak trees like and i i had this weird mental picture of you standing like in a bush like with camo with binoculars just staring at an oak tree (laughs) (laughs) Um, taking notes Ah, this way 200 year old oak tree spotted it'll charge but it's really similar to the way like hunters will scout or like fishermen will read a lake and it's kind of interesting to to me at least the the shared similarity 
Yeah. And, you know, and I was, uh, we did a collaborative class with uh, Frank Hyman, who's another forager uh, in the Triangle area. And he was talking about, you know, his relationship as, as he started foraging, uh, it helped his relationship with nature really evolve where he felt less, less like just an observer of nature and more like part of it. You know, he's out there, he's getting food for himself and his family. Um, I think, I think there's some real value in sort of seeing a, a reciprocal relationship with nature. Um, uh, so it excites me to think that more people are interested in cultivating these skills because, you have to have a relationship with nature to to really pause from the million demands on everybody's life these days uh, and be willing to preserve nature. Um, and I was I was talking with a friend the other day, like, you know, my family's pretty outdoorsy. We go hiking several times a week. My children are two and a half and they have not yet seen old growth forests. Oh, wow. Like, I think there are millions of people walking around that don't really know the difference between what we think of as the woods in the wilderness and what an actual old growth forest would look like because we've depleted so many of them. Um, and looking at the getting to know mushrooms and the relationship and the vastness of the mycorrhizal networks that are underneath the trees uh, this is going to be my bummer part of the podcast, but we're not just losing the hundred year old trees. We're also losing the things that are going on within the soil because those trees depended on the mushrooms and the mushrooms, uh, depended on the trees, you know, and we're finding out more and more that, uh, of some of these different, it, it's kind of a frontier, you know, the world of mushrooms. There's, there's a lot we don't know about them, a lot that have not been fully analyzed. Um, and so, and I personally believe we're going to find a lot of the cures for our diseases and a lot of the methods to sort of clean up our mess and uh, recycle our plastics and micro remediate our nuclear infected zones. I think a lot of those solutions are going to come from innovative people working with mushrooms. Uh, and we can't do it if we don't preserve the fungal life that's out there. And that, that, in, that also includes preserving our old growth forests. So that, that's sort of my stump speech, which I think can sound a little like, ah, <laughs> we gotta, we gotta reverse our course, but it's also sort of inspiring. And, in, and in that the more people kind of learn about mushrooms, learn about nature, um, learn about just the fun and the deliciousness of mushrooms. They have such a diverse culinary profile. Um, I think, I think it can really lead to more reverence and just understanding of the importance of nature. And that, that's truly what we're trying to encapsulate with this. And I know for myself, um, I used to be so much more outdoorsy and I'm getting back to it and um, realizing like I went to Crowder's Mountain down um, outside of Gastonia, North Carolina, and going on the trail and just seeing how much debris people leave on a on a man-made trail. And then I think about, okay, if that's yeah. a man-made trail and I did a two-mile hike and I picked up five water bottles and so many different things, um, and then what does that look like for our wilderness? And like 
out there. Um, when you were, were saying this beautiful speech, I, I imagined like that field of plastic being covered with mushrooms and how cool that would be. That mushrooms would like break mm-hmm. down the plastic. Um, that that would ultimately be the coolest future, I think, is to see us return back to putting nature first because that is our that is yeah. our frontier that is where we will be this is that's the only thing left for us and if we don't preserve it if we don't um respect it and hold it in that reverence uh we it will be lost and us not that far behind it um and for some people unfortunately like that second part of the uh the statement is going to be the motivator but for cool people out there (laughs) the first part is definitely going to be the driving force and uh i'd love for when i have kids um and grandkids for them to be able to go and walk through old growth forests um because i haven't done that either yeah and i'm 24 and that's that's scary to think that i haven't been in old growth oh ah man that that hurts yeah like when you go to the grocery store and you don't you know I can remember when I first realized how many different kinds of tomatoes there were (laughs) because, you know, I used to think all tomatoes were red and and I probably used to think they were all (laughs) fairly pulpy. (laughs) And then you kind of, you know, start going to the farmer's market and you're like, Oh, Whoa. You get your first seed savers exchange catalog and you're like, what? First purple (laughs) bell pepper the other day at the farmer's market. I, yeah, they're, Oh God. It was so tasty. But I was just freaked out because I was like, there's a purple bell pepper and no one told me. <laughs> no one. Have you seen the purple broccoli yet? I feel like I have. Probably on Food Network. No, no, oh, sorry. Yeah. Purple cauliflower. Yeah, that one's purple super cauliflower. cool, too. Purple, purple in that nature is just so beautiful. I feel like I need purple broccoli in my life. Yeah. Maybe you would actually eat it. <laughs> I, lo- you know. Man, I, eat, I eat vegetables like you wouldn't believe. I just, I'm not a vegetarian. I like to have dead animals on my plate, too. It makes me happy. But veggies are so good. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, like vegetable profiles, that that is, that was something that I wanted to, like, sneak in here, is, is the, you know, the culinary profile of mushrooms was something else that has surprised me as I've gotten to know them better. So there's the lion's mane mushroom, uh, and it's a, it's a, beautiful big white puffy toothed fungus uh you cook it the right way and it tastes like crab meat or lobster yeah so i didn't i sure didn't know that uh pink oysters can actually be a pretty good fish like white fish substitute or if you cook it way down and add smoked paprika it's it can be a substitute for bacon um there's the beefsteak mushroom which has a real steaky texture we talked about how chicken of the woods um i should say i am not a vegetarian if i'm sound like i'm like so there's no reason to uh but but these mushrooms do have some pretty diverse you know culinary profiles that i just did not know and i i think most people don't the way you're describing you know? these i'm salivating um because they sound so good i'll also say yeah, yeah, they are. They are. And, you know, we also, uh, a good chunk of our business is actually wholesaling to restaurants. And so we've seen what sort of these really creative artistic chefs do with them. Um, and it kind of takes it all to a whole new level. But just home at your house, 
sauteed in butter or olive oil with salt and pepper, you know, you can get amazingly different textures and flavors based on the variety of mushroom you're working with. You're, you're sending my brain in all kinds of interesting, happy directions. Um, and food. Because, yeah. <laughs> well, we've been talking, like me and Fry have been talking lately about like the whole philosophy behind food. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting because I am trying this little experiment where I'm trying to get myself like 50 to 75% like self-sustaining on food, mostly because I freaking hate going to the grocery store. Oh my God. Do I hate going to the grocery store? It's just <laughs> something about seeing somebody staring at an aisle of potato chips, like slack jawed, just in, in awe of, you know, the multiple bags of potato chips, but I digress rant for another day. Stop talking um, bad about me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but it's so easy. But it, it's interesting um, to hear that there is so many different flavor profiles for mushrooms because, I mean, it's not like you can walk out in the wood. Well, I guess you could, but like, not let's encouraging say you're a hunter as well. Well, no, let's say you're a hunter as well. You can't <laughs> walk out in the woods and shoot a cow and have a steak, but you can go grab a mushroom off a tree or off the ground. I'm not sure where the beefsteak mushroom grows, but my point is you can grab this mushroom and still get something very similar to steak. Mm -hmm. And I'll say oyster mushrooms are 30% protein and they're dry weight. So that's another, I'm trying to myth bust. I'm I, trying to sprinkle in some myth busting. They don't grow in the dark. A lot of people think mushrooms are nutritionally void and that's not true. Uh, they, they actually have pretty high uh, mineral and protein content. I, you're selling me. I'm, like, all right, where can I, I – well, I know where I can go. I can go to you, um, and I'm going to – That's right. Come on. Uh, let me tell you another fun fact. So mushrooms are one of the few food sources that you can get bioavailable vitamin D from. And if you take your mushrooms, like you got them at your farmer's market or your grocery store, uh, and then you go – you take them home and you set them in the sun – they will continue to remediate you vitamin heard it here, D. You folks, you can eat vitamin D. Us vampires, right out of your mushrooms. Right so out of your me mushrooms. me as a vampire, I don't have to go outside anymore. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. <laughs> there's, there's virtually no, except you're going to go out and learn to forage. Um, so one of the best, uh, they've done some studies on people that have made sun-dried mm -hmm. shiitake mushrooms. You know, so they've set up, You, I don't know exactly how you do it, you do, I haven't done this yet, but like a glass plate or something, and the sun shines through it and dehydrates your shiitakes, they actually have more bioavailable vitamin D than if you were to go and take one of those wow. vitamin D supplements. And it's all natural, yeah. And the body actually absorbs it better. They're little bites of sunshine. I love it. That's right. And you can preserve it for the winter. I hate to say this, and wow. I'm embarrassed, but I think I've probably in my entire life only maybe had like three, four different types of mushrooms, and they probably all came from the grocery store. Oh, no. I, I, I made the same thing before <laughs> we started this. Uh, so you're not alone, Donovan. Well, yeah, and that, I think that's pretty that's – a, that's a pretty American scenario. Sometimes I also have uh, – I had a customer come up to me that had – where they been? I'm pretty sure they had been in France. I want to say like Paris. And so they were showing me photos from the farmer's market there. And they were, and so they showed me the mushroom booth and there were like, I don't know, 
20, more than 20 varieties. Some of them were dehydrated, but of cultivated and foraged mushrooms. And they were like, yeah, every market has yeah. a mushroom farmer like this. Yeah, which you'd have to have, you'd have to have a lot going on. And, and I, I presume also be able to really tap into a network. We put out calls for foraged mushrooms. So if anyone listening in North Carolina, South Carolina, or Georgia wants to go become a certified mushroom forager, we will buy your mushrooms from you. Uh, we actually just, we don't have enough foragers. And when I go out hiking, I'm constantly walking past, you know, dried up choice edible mushrooms that just nobody found them. Uh, so I, th I suspect like in Europe, there's more people foraging, more people have the knowledge. So if you're somebody that's doing a Saturday market, you can kind of say like, yeah, send me all the chanterelles you can find. And there's a lot of people that can fulfill that need because it's an under, we're not meeting demand. And I think if more people knew what a black trumpet tasted like, demand for that would go up. So it could, it could really spiral <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> I wonder if that supermarket culture is actually why people have such a prejudice against forged food. Because, you know, why would I walk in the woods and get a mushroom when I can go buy a mushroom at the grocery store? You know, that kind of mentality. Yeah, and and you do if you're gonna be foraging there you know, there's gonna be some bugs involved. Uh you don't have to eat the bugs. Uh great source of protein though, depending on the bug. Yes, right. <laughs> The bugs, insects probably are the next foraging frontier. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not, I'm not pushing that. Um, yeah, but you know, I think we're kind of used to. A lot of people don't even really know like where our food comes from, or you know, like what an okra plant looks like. So we're kind of disconnected. Um, so yeah, I could see, I could see where like the fact that that you just kind of, you know, you have to brush it off and you have to check it for bugs and know like this one's past when I would want to eat it. And this one isn't that, that there'd be sort of that intimidation factor. Man, I, I, that truly is a, a mentality that a lot of people have, because for me, I, I found that I'm learning so much about where my food comes from and I'm doing it in many different ways from talking with um, people like you um, from, watching documentaries on Netflix. Netflix has tons of documentaries for you folks out there about your food and where it comes from. So if you're really trying to to throw your stomach over and learn that you, you're just eating crap, um, <laughs> <laughs> go go to Netflix and be mind boggled. Because um, one of the things I learned was like parts, uh, depending on where your potato comes from, the, the plant that grows from the potato, because those are the roots, folks. It's a legume. Uh, mm -hmm. can be poisonous and these are things that I feel like people knew in my family long ago and I'm like what happened that we we couldn't e even push that on to each other and say like this is where your food comes from like I know avocados don't grow in the United States or at least in my part of the United States but so many people have them it's ridiculous and as a quick plug yeah. if people are interested i am blogging about my little um food self-sustainability project so there's that um wow that was so, so like so <laughs> what you're trying so to shameless and so just not there um no, definitely check that out on our blog that uh, donovan's uh 
journey for self-reliance and food. Um, but Laura, I'm really interested on like the flavor profiles. What is your favorite recipe that you make with mushrooms? Oh, my, my husband makes a mushroom stroganoff. Um, usually we'll do it with oysters cause that's what we have most often, but sometimes we'll make like a wild mushroom stroganoff if we found some stuff. Um, that's my favorite dish. But it's his recipe. I couldn't. I couldn't even tell you how to make it. I'll tell you. The other thing is, it really is delicious. Just butter, salt, pepper, mushrooms. Butter, salt, pepper, mushrooms. Yeah. Sounds easy. In enough. a in a in a frying pan, you can't go um, wrong. So let me ask you this. I know mushrooms can be dried and preserved. How do they? How do mushrooms rank as like a um like a portable food? Like if you wanted to use it, like you know, throw some dried mushrooms in your backpack if you're hiking. I mean, do they hold up well for that, or is that just not gonna fly? I feel like I feel like you just handed this to me, but I know you don't know about. We are about to launch a line of oyster mushroom jerky. Whoa. So and part of the design was like, oh, this would be such a great like backpacker or car snack. So it's what we used to make because we, uh, you know, studies show that if you give out samples at the farmer's market, your sales increase. And we have we have definitely seen that. But there's usually so much going on. We usually only have one person working market that it's really hard to do a hot sample that you kind of got to be cooking and monitoring. So we started making the oyster mushroom jerky um, so we could always have samples that were really low maintenance and they were good, you know, and I, I mentioned oysters about 30% protein and dry weight. So it's a, it's a nice kind of nutritional powerhouse. So there we go. <laughs> Speaking of plugs, um, just dried mushrooms, not, uh, so mushrooms need to be cooked in order to be in order for your body to get those nutritional benefits. And so usually when you're drying them, they've never been cooked. You're just taking the fresh mushroom and dehydrating it. And so you still haven't broken down the outer layer. It's called chitin, which is the same stuff that makes up insects' uh, shells. Insects' <laughs> shells. Insects' exoskeletons. It's okay. Uh, words are hard sometimes. <laughs> the words are so hard. Um so um, you got to break down that chitin layer, um, and so if you were just if you were just eating a dehydrated mushroom, it's still going to have that. And it's first of all not going to be nutritionally available. So those mushrooms you're tossing on your salad are really just fiber, um, which is fine. I actually still put agaricus mushrooms on my salad because I like the texture. I just don't kid myself that I'm getting health benefits from it. Um, but certain mushrooms, if you haven't broken down the chitin, uh, can give you a stomach ache. And I, I think a lot of people that think they might be allergic to mushrooms, they actually, uh, just their stomachs can't tolerate chitin. So if they had mushrooms that were properly cooked, I'm sure there are people that are legit, just allergic to mushrooms, but I think there's also a subset that are just intolerant of chitin. I'm sorry. I'm still trying my, my brain is still like I'm still trying to piece it together after having my mind blown about mushroom jerky. <laughs> that, that sounds really good. I, I will have to. So Saturday market. Well, there, it's not launched yet. Oh. Uh, hopefully in September. Right. Yeah, soon, soon. Well, we'll have to hold out for another month. But that that sounds like worth the wait. I'm still. I think to... it's pretty yummy. Well, 
I've got two and a half year olds, and they eat they eat the heck the out of it. My brain is lit. My mind is literally blown right now. I would have never in a million. <laughs> yeah, well, the texture of oysters, you know, it kind of tears like like along those lines of of a kind of a one of the flat jerkies. I would have never in a million years put mushroom and jerky together, but it's genius. And you guys are and you guys are going to be millionaires, <laughs> and you're going to. And you're going to remember yeah. your, your poor <laughs> podcaster friends when you're millionaires. <laughs> totally. I'll be like, I sponsor this podcast. Yes. Because international. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that would be super cool. But I'm sure Donovan will settle for just unlimited <laughs> supply of jerky. <laughs> he would be happy. But that, wow. So we have a mushroom stroganoff. We're, we're looking at jerky uh, this coming fall. Um, and some of these protein replacements for like um, chicken of the woods, like I'm, I, I know you and I talked before the podcast about, you know, tricking our friends <laughs> with, with, with yeah. a vegan trickster. <laughs> I feel like trickster. it would be, that sounds like a great. <laughs> so the chicken of the woods, if you fry it up, you could really convince someone that it is chicken. So uh, we were sort of saying like, I was like, I would never do I, that. I, <laughs> but you could. I, yeah. I'm a jerk. I will do that. <laughs> I'll lie to my friends. <laughs> I lie to my students stuff all like, the time. Um, chicken of the woods and stuff like that. Is that something you guys are capable of growing or does that kind of fall under that? Um, we're not really sure how this works. Yeah, it falls. Yeah, it falls under sort of the category of, of highly resistant to cultivation. Um so what happens with the chicken of the woods is the mycelium runs. So you can kind of see, you know, we're growing in these little bags of substrate and you can see the little mycelium filling it out, but it either never produces a fruit body or the fruit bodies are really small. So to make it sort of viable that, you know, you're getting your money's worth for, uh, for all the controls you have to put in place to get it to fruit, it, it's just, it's really not quite there. Um, they do, they sell, um, like plug spawn that you can go ahead and inoculate logs and then you bury them cause they really like to mm -hmm. kind of grow on like buried wood. Uh, and then you wait like <laughs> two and a half years <laughs> and then they grow. So that, that would be a long-term project for us. We, we haven't inoculated any logs around here for chicken of the woods so we'd need to do it and then we'd need to wait till our children are in first grade uh to let you know if it worked but it, it's kind of crazy though because you see pictures of like actual chicken of the woods and those things are jai freaking enormous they can get huge boy i see some, some sometimes like out of alaska mm -hmm. and it's yeah, just like it, hundreds of pounds wow around here the i mean the largest one i found was 16 pounds wow so yeah, which was still, I was super delighted. Yeah, I, I've seen pictures of them and like on shows and things, but I've never seen one out in the woods. Every so often, uh, I'll, I'll stop. Right now it's puffball season. Uh, so uh, puffballs, they, they uh, are the, you know, those solid little mushrooms. A lot of us as kids probably had some variety that we actually, you squeeze them and the spores come out the top when they're really mature. So if you ever did that. Yeah, those were totally. I, 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 I know that and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I seem to remember joy from 
squeezing spores at my friends. I thought you were talking um, about the gumballs. So with spikes. <laughs> so the pu- the puffball mushrooms there if if you cut them open they're solid white inside. There's several edible edible varieties that are like that and the season just started. Uh like I just found my first one last week and my husband was like, "Oh, because I get crazy with the puffballs." <laughs> Like, if you're driving down the road and you see something that looks like a loaf of bread, it's probably this skullcap puffball that's really common here in North Carolina. And and I'm really good at finding them. <laughs> and so I literally will be driving down the road and see, like, three in someone's yard. So I'll go and knock on their door and be like, hey, you know, I noticed your puffballs and I was wondering <laughs> if you were going to eat them. And they'll sort of say, you know, like... I've lived here, I've had this conversation probably seven times, So they'll say, I've lived here for like 20 years, and those things come up every year, and I've never known what they were. You know, I usually just pick them and throw them away, because I, I wasn't sure if they were like damaging my lawn. Uh, and so I'll tell, I'll ask like, well, have you sprayed any pesticide on them? You know, <laughs> and if not, you know, I'll show you how I cook them. And, you know, <laughs> now that you know this, do you want it? <laughs> Or can I have it? And they always give them to me. <laughs> but they're usually happy to know that it's food. But I've run into several people that, like, you know, have chicken of the woods that sprout under their big oak tree in their yard. And they've been, like, tearing it up because they thought and it was killing the tree. now I have a mental picture of you just popping up at somebody's door being like, hey, do you have a minute to talk about your puffball mushrooms? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't help but notice the fungus in your yard. <laughs> Folks, answer your doors. It might be a mushroom forager. No, it's not a Jehovah's Witness. So you're okay. <laughs> so let's see. So far during this podcast, we found out that you actually stalk oak trees from the bushes with binoculars and volcano, and you show up at random people's houses to ask them about their puffballs. Yeah. How how wide is this distribution? Uh, this international. We do have some people. it's actually just going to every boyfriend you've ever had (laughs) actually just going to my mom (laughs) that's the continual joke and i don't even know if my mom has actually listened now that i think about it (laughs) oh wow Um, oh god (laughs) so i have asked this question of a forger before and i learned my lesson so i'm going to rephrase it a little bit now um, can you list off just some of the hmm. types of edible mushrooms around here? I'm not asking you to tell us what to go look for or say, hey, try the yellow one that's growing on this tree, but just what kind of edible mushrooms there are around here so people know what they can look at and kind of get some more ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about that. I think, I think you set up that premise, but yeah, me listing these off does not mean like, Go find them and say, Laura, I did them via podcast. No, no I've never talked to her in person. Establish um, that. <laughs> but a general sense of, of things you could be looking for. Um, so in the spring, there are morels, uh, and we do get them in North Carolina. You can follow them north, and people in Michigan get like tons and tons and tons. Um, but we have a decent morel harvest come here to North Carolina. Um, there's the uh we talked about puff balls we talked about chicken of the woods they have a pretty broad season um there's uh maitake or hen of the woods 
um, that has like a steaky flavor, and it's another one that grows kind of in similar environments to what uh, Chicken of the Woods grows in, uh, and it and could be kind of a big reward. You can come home with 20, 30, even way, way up there, pound amounts of them. The lion's mane is the one that tastes like uh, crab meat that grows on trees. It's a toothed fungus. Um, there's a, a blue edible mushroom called the indigo milk cap. Uh, and those are pretty cool to cook with. Um, there's a, uh, a lobster mushroom that, uh, it's actually, it's usually a russula, which would not be a choice edible mushroom, but it's colonized by another mushroom and it turns it kind of this orangey red and it also <laughs> turns it delicious. Turns it delicious. <laughs> It turns it delicious. That's the technical term. It makes more yummy. Ah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what I'm. I'm doing it off the top of my head, so I'm probably leaving out all sorts of choice ones. But uh, oh, and chanterelles. I think the ones that people seem to talk about the most are uh, uh, morels, chanterelles. Uh, chicken of the woods and hen of the woods. And morels are just so cool looking. They look like little brains on sticks. It really, it is. A, if you've never had a morel in your life, you know, keep working your network till you till you can try one. Because the the texture is its own whole thing, and it's the flavor is its own whole thing. They're just they're good and they're neat and they're different. That's definitely on my list of things to try this year. Yeah. I'll be honest, whenever we do get them to market, and, and usually we just eat them ourselves or uh, have a little party <laughs> with a small group of friends because we don't find them in huge quantities. Um, but I always know, like, the price you got to set them at is they sell for 60 bucks a pound, wow. you know. And so, of course, we're not selling them by the pound to customers, but a lot of times it really is like one big morel or, or you know, a small handful for five bucks and – you know, money doesn't grow on trees. So I, I know when people buy them, they're making an investment, but I just, it's worth it. You but know, mushrooms grow on trees. <laughs> That's right. Oh my God. That one. I'll give you, I'll give you the that corny joke. I will give you that. That corny joke. That was, that was well timed. Excellent. But we know that your stand up routine is not going to, to air next season. Ever. Um, on Netflix. So. <laughs> We'll keep working uh, at it, though. So off my game. So, Laura, I, I've asked this of pretty much everyone that has come on this podcast, actually. Uh, definitely everyone. Um, what would be a story that you, like, it could be memorable, it could be funny, it can be, you know, embarrassing of, like, a customer, probably not yourself, but um, just a memorable <laughs> story that you have either from foraging or at market or when you started to learn about mushrooms that you want, you know, the world to know about. So choose wisely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Give me a minute. We can we can edit out the long pause or and we try and like a good plan. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> or it can be like the SpongeBob three years later. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not thinking of a a full kind of bazinga 
moment. I will, I will say something that kind of cracks me up is uh, if you do a uh, – if you do if you do a market and you're there selling mushrooms pretty much every market somebody's going to make the joke about you know like oh do you have any like psychedelic mushrooms which is just sort of like when i was a teenager my family went to graceland and my dad uh this this will all come together okay. when my dad when my dad turned in the you know at graceland they give you headphones to listen mm -hmm. to the tour and when he turned him in back to the guide, he said, he get, he handed the headphones and he said, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm like 15. I was like, dad, do you think he doesn't hear that a million times every day? And my dad was like, <laughs> yeah, but it was my chance to say it. <laughs> so the mushroom farmer, if it's sort of your chance to make a joke about psychedelic mushrooms at the farmer's market, like you know, just remember the mushroom farmer is the tour guide that has heard it a million times, but I also get it that this is your chance to say it. <laughs> and then the the other thing people like to come up to us is to say, like, well, I heard um, actually a cousin of mine, uh, his nephew's uncle's friend's acquaintance ate a mushroom and died. <laughs> People to love fair, to tell us those Carolina, stories. Any, any story <laughs> okay. that starts with either, hey, y'all, watch this, hold my beer, or my cousin, you know it's going to be something ridiculous and probably not yeah. true anywhere. Or dangerous. Yeah. Brace, brace yourself. But it's funny, like, what other crop could you sell that would just spontaneously inspire people to walk up and tell you about, the you know... <laughs> Uh, rumors of death. <laughs> I've heard of oh, once. Oh yeah, the devil's lettuce. Maybe. Uh, no, 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 no. That is that is a different type of cannabis. Hemp is the one that's used for like building materials and CBD. No, but I, I have a friend who's a hemp <laughs> farmer out in Eastern North Carolina. He always gets people saying, "You're smoking the devil's lettuce." Guy hasn't done anything in his life. <laughs> Just. But that's the other crop I can imagine people are talking about. Psychedelics. Probably so. Yeah. That that was a bad joke. Yeah. Um, all right. Crickets for me. <laughs> you win tonight, it, it, Donovan. You win tonight. Bad jokes, and that's kind of our shtick. I, I got a double because I'm... Yeah. I, well... So mushroom farmers love puns. I seem... <laughs> when we get together, it, it can oh, get... Oh, the puns. We can get I, pretty grown-worthy. Yeah. I, I have so I'm with you. I have terrible puns on my door from my classroom. Um, so they're little puns you can tear off and carry with you. Oh. But my cr <laughs> my crowning so achievement funny. was the uh, the free tutoring. It had a picture of the, pictures of the tutor dynasty across the bottom. <laughs> oh, I love those. But I, um, <laughs> That's cute. I think it's funnier when people see that it's Henry VIII and all his wives. And then my favorite is always like for uh, what are Anne Boleyn and uh, Catherine Howard. I tear <laughs> them so that their heads are still left there. <laughs> You'll have to excuse her. It's just little strange things like that that bring her joy. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this before we wrap up. And this is kind of our, our one go-to question for everybody. Is there a resource of some variety 
that you can recommend to our listeners um, with, you know, the assumption that they come visit you guys for all their mushroom related needs being kind of the given? Uh, well, I'll definitely say support your local mushroom farmer. Um, I guess I, I would sort of toss it, toss it back to find, cause you know, what, what's popping is going to vary depending on where you are in the country. Um, look for uh, a regional um, hunting guide. If you are in the Southeast, know that sort of a lot of the mycology movement and guides tend to be centered on the Western part of the United States, but there's some really good state specific and, and Southeast guides. Uh, and you might particularly benefit from buying a, a regionally targeted one. Uh, the Bessets just came out with a guide for North Carolina. So, you know, whatever state you're in, look and see if, if there's a guide for your state or your region. Um, oh. And yeah, cultivate a relationship. <laughs> Cultiv it's, it's a pun. Cultivate a relationship with your local mushroom farmer. Um, it, it is, you know, farming in any sector is not easy. So for one, they'll probably just appreciate the support and interest and, um, they may sort of be able to offer you some more insight uh, into what's kind of going on mycologically in your in your region. A lot of times there's, you know, there's like uh, regional Facebook groups, uh, regional 4A groups. Oh, I know what, what I should say. Uh, also is the North American Mycological Association is a national association that has several uh, regional groups. So if you have a, a NAMA, North American Mycological Association group in your area, you could join that. I feel like I just earned my membership this year. <laughs> and and Fry, yes, where are they? You located definitely in? did. Where, where is the mushrooms? Ah, <laughs> uh, dang it, Saxopal? Did I, did I leave out? Did I leave out a syllable? That's you kind of you kind of didn't give the hall part. Saxopal. But you, I, that's right. Yay, Saxapaha. Saxapaha. There we yeah. go. I, I should be their <laughs> spokesperson now Saxapaha. so I can say <laughs> Saxapaha, North Carolina. Um, where, yeah. Yes. And that is where Haw River uh, Mushroom Farms is located. Laura Stewart, um, their wonderful connoisseur of mushrooms, uh, farmer extraordinaire, and I think you're going to have one of the best sounding podcasts that we have. So, great. That's been a delight talking to y'all. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. The pleasure was all ours, believe me. <laughs> Definitely so. So, for all of you listening at home, thanks for coming back. We'll, well, you'll hear from us soon. And as always, stay wild, my friends. And stay tuned till next time. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs>